This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Thursday. Thanks for hanging out with us today. It is 12 days until the election. Can you please stop saying that? How many days is it until Christmas, Shira? Remember when you were giving happy updates like that? I lost track of the happy updates. I'm sorry, Ryan. I'm about to find How many out right days now. I'm about is to it find into, out. Oh, okay, you're Googling it. All right, while well, you Google it. 64 oh. days. Let's talk about that. Days. 64 days until Christmas. Okay. Jeez that feels Louise. good. <laughs> All right, coming up today, of course, the debate is tonight, the second and final presidential debate, and we've got you covered. The Washington Post is joining us to share what to look out for. Plus, for Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we're looking at how breast cancer impacts the trans community. This is a really important topic, Um, and it's an angle that not a lot of people talk about. I agree. I'm so happy that we're covering this. It's very, very interesting. So stick around because there's so many things that you're going to learn from this. And also the debate, I want to know what we're really going to expect on that. Like, is there anything really that we can learn that's anything new or going to shift the tide? So we'll see. Well, let's get into some what's trending this hour because President Trump is trying to shift the tide in his own way. Will it work? Who knows? Uh, The White House today did leak that unedited video of Trump's talk with Leslie Stahl conducted at the White House two days ago. Of course, Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes. This was this like interview that everyone's been talking about. The conversation ended earlier than planned after Trump grew impatient with the CBS News correspondents questions and follow-ups. The White House did tape the entire interview using its own camera, by the way, for what it called, quote, archival purposes. I'm actually surprised that they let this happen. Uh, But yes, nothing surprising from this administration. And on Twitter, Trump described the interview as a vicious attempted takeout and continued to complain in the post of the video on his official Facebook page. Here's a clip. You know, I I didn't want to have this kind of Of course you did. No, I didn't. Well, she no, did. I didn't. well, then you brought up a lot of subjects that well, were inappropriately brought up. Questions. They were inappropriately but, brought up right from the beginning. No, your first question was, this is going to be tough questions. Well, when you set up the interview, your first statement Who's was... president? No, don't you think me, you no, should no, be no. accountable to Listen, the American Your first statement to me, this is going to be tough questions. Well, I don't mind that. But when you set up the interview, you didn't say that. You said, oh, let's have a lovely interview. Now, Trump also took a shot at NBC News White House correspondent Kristen Welker, Welker in his Facebook post. Welker is the moderator of tonight's final presidential debate. And so, yeah, he uh, seemed to just do whatever he wanted to within this video. He said tonight's anchor, Kristen Welker, is far worse. He should be embarrassed. He literally exposed himself as a whiner in chief. Let's be quite honest. All he's doing is whining that she literally said she was going to ask him tough questions and hold him accountable. He's the president. It's not going to be like Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not the president. You are in charge of everything that is going on in this country. He does not want to own up to it or have any type of acknowledgement. So he is like a 12-year-old or not even a 12-year-old. Sorry to all the 12-year-olds out there. He's like a four-year-old. And even that's a stretch. And I'm sorry if I'm offending four-year-olds. But guess what? He's a baby acting like a child. Yep, baby president. It's like that's the new Baby Shark song. Baby president. Do, 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 do. That would annoy I'm you. Not, I'm it? not making no type of jokes out of this situation. It's that's embarrassing. True. Now, Trump's Twitter account was reportedly hacked last week. This is being reported everywhere after a Dutch researcher correctly guessed the president's password. 
Do you want to guess what it was? It was pretty easy. Mega 2020 exclamation points. I'm so sad that I didn't hack into it because I feel like I would have seen some stuff. Right? We could have gotten a lot of exclusives, Ryan. The security expert had access to Trump's direct messages, could post tweets in his name, and change his profile. Ooh, I wonder, did he DM anyone? Hmm? I guess uh, we don't know that, but he didn't seem to do anything malicious. He just now is boasting about the fact that it was so easy and he did it. Now, during an unexpected news briefing, Last night, the Federal Bureau of Investigation said Iran and Russia have obtained information of registered voters and have been sending out, quote, spoofed emails to influence public opinion relating to the U.S. election. Here's the director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe. With that in mind, we would like to alert the public that we have identified that two foreign actors, Iran and Russia, have taken specific actions to influence public opinion relating to our election. Now, the FBI director, uh, Christopher Wray, said Americans should be confident that their vote counts, though, adding early unverified claims to the contrary should be viewed with a healthy dose of skepticism. So, yeah, that happened officially. And that was so much trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right. So we got the tea report, you know, those pop culture moments that are trending right now. Matthew McConaughey is revealing all in a new memoir. He is saying Mm. that um, he was sexually abused multiple times as a teen. And this story, I want to make sure we put a trigger warning for anyone who is listening um, because it can be a lot. And I won't go into too much detail because you can check out the full story at Weird Channel Q. But here's a little bit. He says, I was blackmailed into having sex for the first time when I was 15. And he is now 50, writing in his newly released autobiography called Green Lights. He said, I was certain I was going to hell for the premarital sex. Um, Today, I'm merely certain that I hope that that's not the case. Um, He also revealed that he was molested by a man when he he was 18 while knocked Mm. unconscious in the back of a van. He didn't give too many details about either case's abuse. However, he says he's never felt like a victim as, quote, I have a lot of proof that the world is conspiring to make me happy, unquote. And so, wow, this time is we're really seeing a lot of celebrity memoirs come out during this time during quarantine and people are doing a lot of reflecting. Yeah, I think uh, this is really important, even though it is triggering. And I'm really impressed with how Matthew McConaughey has stepped out and grown outside of being an actor. I am too. And like I said, if you want to know more about this story, head over to WeirdChannelQ.com and keep us followed at LGT Show Everywhere and stay tuned. More Tea Report coming up next hour. Yes. Okay. Tonight is the third and final presidential debate. We break down what you can expect with the Washington Post next in two minutes. For tonight's final presidential debate, President Trump is pushing for foreign policy to dominate his conversation with Democratic candidate Joe Biden versus, of course, you know, the issues really devastating our country, like the pandemic, unemployment and other stuff, which let's not get too much into that because it's a hard day already. Um, So will this angle help him win? Well, back with us is the editor of The Fix for The Washington Post, Natalie Jennings. Thanks again for joining us on this very busy day. Glad to be with you all. So in the grand scheme of things, how important is foreign policy here to talk about today? I mean, foreign policy is obviously an extremely important part of the president's job. Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and really focused on foreign policy when he was vice president. So there's a lot that could be said. Um, Of course, like you mentioned, it has taken a back seat in American politics over the last year. Um, And the moderator is who gets to pick the topics for these debates. Kristen Welker of NBC is going to moderate, and she chose six topics, none of them explicitly foreign policy. Um, And I think one thing that is important to know is when President Trump wants to talk about foreign policy, that's probably a way in for him to talk about Joe Biden and his son, who he wants to accuse of impropriety in dealings with foreign countries. So... Depending on how you look at Trump, you may think that obviously he may have done some really good things in foreign policy, but is it really the picture that he is trying to paint? Could it possibly backfire on him? Um, I think right now he wants to be able to make a, a hit on Joe Biden in this arena. Uh, Joe Biden has, of course, a long record of things to talk about. And, and you know, Joe Biden has to go down in the polls in order for this to 
this race to change. Um, so more than touting Trump's own record, I think he's looking to attack Joe Biden on his. And Natalie Jennings is with us from the Washington Post right now. So let's talk about that. Like if he was going to be bringing down Joe Biden, his record, what would he be referencing? Well, uh, Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. He was um, against some of the things that were popular that Obama did in terms of like um, surging troops in the Middle East um, in order to get some situation under control there. Um, you know, and he's just affiliated with with all the warring that was going on in the Obama uh, administration. Um, and the other thing is that, um, you know, while we have litigated Hunter Biden's involvement in Ukraine, he was on the board of a company there. Um, that was the reason that President Trump got impeached was because he was trying to further the narrative of uh, Hunter Biden's involvement in Ukraine in an attempt to hurt Biden as the nominee. So, um, so that's really, I think, what Trump wants to talk about tonight. Ryan did mention some of the things that Trump has done has been good on the foreign policy front, but also it has given those countries more in terms of nuclear capabilities. So let's get into what might come up tonight on that front. Yeah, if it does come up, I mean, Trump will talk about how he has taken a much tougher line on Iran. Um, that is controversial, certainly. Um, and he authorized an attack that took out a, a major Iranian military commander earlier this year, um, as long ago as that seems. Um, he has moved to draw down troops. Um, troop levels aren't down a ton, but he, you know, has been consistently part of his efforts to do that. Um, and he's very tough on China. Uh, but not as tough on some of the other foreign adversaries we have, like Russia and North Korea. So, okay, obviously, moving out of foreign policy, what can we expect um, for this debate? Is it anything that could really shift the tides? Like, is this something that is everyone's like, oh, this is a make or break moment for these candidates? Well, there's certainly a lot of pressure on Joe Biden not to make a mistake. Polls show mm -hmm. him uh, leading in pretty much every swing state, um, more narrowly than he is nationally, but it's seen as his race to lose right now. Um, he's not the most smooth speaker, and he escaped the first debate um, without any negative storylines. Of course, that was all about how President Trump just bulldozed his way through the debate. Uh, now, Biden will get more of a chance to talk, and that leaves more room for error for him. So with all that, can you just name the topics as we wrap this up of like what we're going to be hearing tonight? Yeah, so President Trump really wanted foreign policy, but that is not on the official list of topics. That is uh, COVID-19, um, race in America, climate change, leadership. I still don't uh, know what they, I mean, hopefully it's a more clear and concise conversation when it comes to race in America, because it kind of reminds me of what Chris Wallace did and it just felt too broad, but whatever. <laughs> right, yes, um, this is not, um, they did not say like Chris Wallace did. Chris Wallace said um, race and violence in cities, um, mm. which, you know, combining those things upset a lot of people. This one is explicitly focused on race. Um, there's plenty to talk about within that. And, and then sure the leadership. Awkward for Trump as well. Um, uh, you know, we, we know what he claims as his, um, his, you know, justification his on stance. that, which is economy, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, how great the economy was, um, and could be again. Okay. A lot to take in for tonight. Ooh, I'm getting yeah. anxious. We'll uh, but coming up, Natalie Jennings is sticking around with us because we're going to be talking about this stimulus bill. Are we going to be able to get it before the election? It's so hard to keep up. We tell you what you can expect from that next in two minutes. Another Senate vote on a pandemic stimulus bill has failed. The Wednesday vote on the Republican crafted bill, which included about $500 billion in aid, ended up breaking along party lines, 51 to 44, and falling short, unfortunately, of the 60 votes needed for the legislation to advance. Uh, and Republicans broadly supported moving ahead with the legislation, while Democrats did not. Back with us is the editor of The Fix, Natalie Jennings from The Washington Post. Okay, Natalie, I mean, what is stopping the stimulus bill from being passed. Do you think at this point they would both realize like they need to find some common ground here? Well, it's not a both thing. It's a three-part thing, remember. So Pelosi and the White House are getting closer um, in a way that is really ticking off Senate Republicans who don't want the, the bill for this to be too high. They wanted it in the, um, you know, under trillions range. Pelosi wanted it in the like three trillion range she and White House 
um, in the former Stephen Mnuchin, who's leading the negotiations, have kind of come to pretty close together on the numbers on this. And their agreement is something that is really ticking off Senate Republicans. They want nothing to do with something that is that expensive. Um, and so even, you know, as close as we're getting on this one front in these two, the House and White House, Senate Republicans still are not anywhere near ready to approve that. So let's talk Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, because here is a clip of him saying that the COVID relief bill does not include another round of stimulus checks for Americans. No, it it doesn't. Um, But it does address an awful lot of things that we do agree on. And I don't think the fact that those checks are not a part of this package, as others have said, is a good argument for not doing what we are laying on the floor most of which is completely without controversy. Why are they so against another round of stimulus checks? Um, The Senate Republicans just don't want to do a huge bill. Um, They would like to take pieces of it and pass like aid for this in one bucket, aid for, you know, different things. And they also don't want to bail out um, city and state governments uh, to the the degree that um, the House does. So there's a couple of things that they say that are just non-starters in this big bill that um, that the White House and uh, the House are agreeing on. Um, and of course, we're getting to a point, we're so close to the election, that if anything is agreed upon, it's not going to make a material difference to people. And that saps a little bit of the willpower for people who you know feel like it would help them electorally one way or the other to put something out. The motivation is just not there. And potentially after the election, things could change. The dynamics will obviously be different depending on what happens. Definitely. Nellie Jennings from the Washington Post joins us right now. Uh, So yeah, you're saying that this is not going to probably happen before the election. Is that basically it? Even if there's an agreement, I think that is, um, that is unlikely there wouldn't be time to get anything out the door. Um, what Senate Republicans really want to do is get Amy Barry, Amy Coney Barrett approved in on the court, which they'll do next week and then get out of town and um, campaign, tie up their loose ends and come back in November. How do they think this is going to help them with trying to reelect, you know, Donald Trump and this idea of, especially a lot of them, like uh, Lindsey Graham, he's up for reelection. How is that really helping Republicans in the bigger scheme of things? If, you know, the American people feel like they don't care and they rather have Amy in versus giving out more stimulus checks. Um, It, it, may not help them. I think the time when it would have helped them is passed probably a couple of months ago. Um, they can tout this Amy Coney Barrett nomination and confirmation as a win for them. Um, and they also don't want to get in a, a situation where they, they are looking at potentially not being in the majority, but also, you know, likely not having a president in their party. And they, they are reining in their spending habits ahead of time a little bit. Um, they've approved a lot of spending under President Trump that is uncharacteristic for Republicans. Um, they are now pulling back and, and sort of returning to more uh, Republican form, I guess you would say, on spending ahead of a potential Democratic presidency. So you're seeing that they are preparing possibly for Joe Biden to win. But being at The Washington Post and covering this every day, what are you seeing in terms of the poll numbers? How much can we re- really rely on them right now? Um, I think they're a good snapshot of where the race is right now. And of course, a lot of millions and millions of Americans have already voted. Um, they're not perfect, but they're, the gaps are such that, um, you know, they're not in, in the margin of error, meaning, you know, someone's ahead by three points. You think, oh, that's, that's a tie. You've got to consider that a tie. Someone's ahead by 10 points. Um, that's not likely to be a polling error. Um, so you can have confidence in that nationally. And then, of course, what you got to do is look at the states um, that are really close, because for the Electoral College, it really matters what happens in these individual swing states. Biden has a lead in most of those. So, you know, I think it's, you know, people are after 2016 never going to say that they know what's going to happen in a race. Um, but the numbers and the evidence we have now, which is as good as we're going to get, uh, is that Biden is the favorite. And I thought at one point, wasn't Donald Trump actually for getting us all stimulus checks again? Like, wasn't he tweeting out being like, yeah, he still is. That's why him to do it. That's that's why there's three. It's Democrats, Republicans, and then the administration. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He wants to be able to say that he did something for people going into his election. Um, This is happening on his watch. He's the president. So while there are three parties, um, 
Donald Trump is the face of the American government right now. And he seems to be surprised about that. Okay, Natalie Jennings, thanks as always. Natalie, again, is the editor of The Fix for The Washington Post. Now coming up, a new bill that could let kids override their anti-vaxxer parents. That's next in two minutes. Over the past decade, the anti-vaccination movement has gained popularity in the U.S. And in 2019, the U.S. almost lost its measles elimination status, which the country claimed in 2000 because of all of this. Uh, But sometimes kids who are being denied vaccinations may not feel the same way as their anti-vaxxer parents. And now there's a new bill in Washington, D.C. that, if passed, would let kids consent to their own vaccinations. Now, just to be clear about this, other states have bills like this, but this is like the lowest age it's ever been. So this week, the D.C. Council passed the Minor Consent for Vaccinations Amendment Act in a 12 to 1 vote. It was introduced by a council member in March 2019, and the bill would allow kids as young as 11 to decide if they want to be vaccinated. So I I do like this bill, but I do wonder, um, you know, what if parents know about certain medical conditions that their kids just don't understand or know yet? And so I, I wonder if they're like saying, no, I want to take this these this vaccination or this medicine, regardless of what you're saying, and they take it, and then there's could be some like consequences to that is the only thing that popped up in my brain. But I, I love that there are children out there who are like, no, I, I need to be protected. I'm in schools. I'm around these people, especially now kids growing up in the middle of a pandemic, which no one else around our age or their parents' age have ever experienced something like this to this extent. Yeah, I, I think, you know, children are going to start taking a stand and start saying, hey, no, I want to be protected. And I don't care about these anti-vaxxer rules that you're trying to set on my life. Like, I, I do enjoy this. Yeah, it does make sense considering how divisive this is. And yet still it's proven you know, that vaccinations help. And so it is a difficult situation to put a child into if they want it, right? But one council member who was actually the only one to oppose the bill argued that 11 is too young to let kids make these kinds of medical decisions. 11 is is. That was the one thing I did did think about. Uh, This person said parents have a fundamental right to to direct the upbringing, education, and care of their children. And uh, medical professionals in schools should not be permitted to coerce impressionable minors into procedures capable of causing injury or death behind their parents' back. Yeah, so it kind of reminds me of like kids who get divorced from their parents. And I know you have to be of a certain age, but it kind of reminds me of this and this idea of like a child can like be so upset or have one major argument with their parents. And now all of a sudden they're making super life changing decisions about their themselves and their bodies. And that's just <laughs> yes. very scary when I'm thinking about it. Like, I just don't know when I have an 11 year old that I want them making decisions, even though I'm going to get them vaccinated. I don't know if I want them to be able to make decisions decisions like that because they don't 11 year olds just don't have the all the complete understanding in my opinion oh yeah your brain's definitely not developed yeah. but this is like an anti-vaxxer parent's worst nightmare mm-hmm. like imagine you get in a fight and your kid wants to rebel against you and what do they do they don't do drugs or alcohol i'm getting a vaccine i'm getting vaccinated mom <laughs> that's what i'm talking about uh so we'll see if this pass passes we'll be following the story as it continues but definitely interesting stuff here in 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now coming up, the latest ruling against the officers charged in the George Floyd murder. Details on that next on What's Trending this hour. Coming up on the show, how we can support the trans community during Breast Cancer Awareness Month happening this October, of course. Uh, Plus, living back with your family during the pandemic, and are you feeling like a failure? You're not alone. And we're here to help you see things from another perspective later in the show. You are not alone at all. So many people, including us, uh, feel that way at different points, especially this year. And I'm happy that we're talking about it because it's difficult. A lot of this time, people feel like they have regret and they haven't moved as far ahead as they wanted to. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that. And I think it's also okay to be comfortable with expressing that part of you instead of holding it in, feeling like, oh, I should be grateful regardless, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of different feelings around these things. And it's it's important to allow yourself to feel, you can tend to get in that place where you feel guilty about feeling, right? Mm, (laughs) And then that's just like a downward spiral as well. So we're here for you. We've got a psychologist joining us for that conversation in a bit. 
But let's get into some what's trending this hour. The Senate Judiciary Committee voted to advance SCOTUS nominee Amy Coney Barrett to a full Senate vote next week, and Democrats boycotted the vote. Here's Senator Lindsey Graham making the announcement. I'll be glad to listen to any comments you'd like to make, but uh, we did it. We did it. Judge Barrett's going to the floor. I hope you look back on this uh, time on the committee and say I was there when it mattered, and you were. And we'll be continuing to cover this next week. But in the meantime, still, they have not passed what a lot of Americans are looking for, which is the stimulus bill. I mean, right. I don't know what they're waiting for while millions of Americans are struggling because of everything. People are, yes, the economy is trying to reopen and readjust, but people are still struggling. People are catching up and that stimulus check would be so helpful. And then also Lindsey Graham is absolutely the worst. And I really hope he loses his election because he does not deserve. Jamie Harrison is doing well. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Now, coming up, The Hill is reporting that President Trump is expected to bring Hunter Biden's former business partner to the presidential debate tonight in Nashville, Tennessee, as he's seeking to make Democratic nominee Joe Biden's private life still the focus of this last last stretch of the election. Tony Bobulinski is this guy's name, a former Army intelligence officer who claims to have managed the Biden's foreign business portfolio at one time. He's going to be the president's guest, and Trump has invited, as we know, controversial figures to pass debates to rattle his opponents, get them going, draw attention to the allegations against them. In 2016, you might remember Trump invited women who had accused former President Clinton of sexual misconduct to debate against then Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. And you said who you think uh, Biden might bring tonight. Yeah, so there is this uh, kind of conversation online on social, you know, just imagine if Joe Biden brings President Trump, uh, not President Trump, but President Obama to literally sit in the front row of this debate. It would be absolutely incredible to see Trump kind of get so nervous and crumble under that pressure because, I mean... Imagine someone that you're so jealous of, you talk about constantly, and honestly, you just want to have a legacy like them. Imagine you sitting right, them sitting right in front of you in the biggest moment of your political career. So who knows if that's going to happen? I doubt Joe Biden will ever kind of go low in that way. Um, but I, you know, I kind of would want that. But no, it's too Trumpy. You know, like you said, Trump does those little things to try to shake up his opponents. But who knows? I don't think Biden has it in him. Obama could be just, you know, uh, a good coach to have on the sidelines like that. It's, it's needed. Yeah, no, motivator. Obama has been on the campaign train with him. He started to go out, um, I think, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. So we'll see. Who knows if he'll make an appearance in Nashville? We will see. Now, a Hennepin County judge dismissed a third-degree murder charge against Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer captured on video pressing his knee against Floyd's neck, George Floyd. Now, the former police officer still faces the more serious charge of second-degree murder as well as second-degree manslaughter, that charge for the May 25th death of Floyd, which has sparked nationwide protests over police brutality um, this summer, and, of course, that continues. And that was so much trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news? Okay, so let's talk our pop culture tea report moment of all those stories that are trending right now. So, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, basically, New York Post is reporting because I guess some documents were made public this Thursday that Ghislaine Maxwell, y'all remember her from the Jeffrey Epstein case? Well, she became so enraged while answering questions about Jeffrey's accuser, Virginia, in a 2016 deposition that she violently pounded on the table, knocking over a computer just because she was asked, like, um, by Virginia's lawyer, asked this. So you think she is lying when she said she had sex with Jeffrey Epstein when she was underage? Um, And Maxwell, she just completely flipped out and was just so pissed that she was even there. And it's just wild because she responded to questions from Virginia's attorney about whether um, Epstein had sex with Virginia when she was a minor. The exchange is included in a more than 400-page deposition and a defamation case um, bought by uh, Virginia against Maxwell. I mean, there's so much to this story, and I just felt like everyone would want to know. So, girl, that's your tea report of the Pop Culture Moments. Head over to Weird Channel Q to check out the full story. Now, coming up, as I mentioned, more young adults are moving back with their parents. Why that might not be a bad thing and how to deal with that coming up in two minutes. 
Pew Research Center recently reported that the proportion of 18 to 29 year old Americans who live with their parents has increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Not surprising considering everyone's life has changed, right. job situation, etc. The question is, is this really a bad thing and how do you accept this new reality? Because it is very challenging. Back with us is clinical psychologist, Dr. Josh Claypo. Thanks again for joining us for this. Good to be back. Uh, so I guess, how are people supposed to deal with this new reality? Because it might seem like you're regressing. Yes. Uh, well, I think one of the hardest things about this new reality is that it is not set in stone. It's so dynamic, right? We, we've been talking now, particularly with the pandemic, First, the new reality was a few weeks, then it was a month. Now we're eight months or nine months. And then people are saying, is, is it going to ever go back? So I think part of the problem is there, the new reality is uncertainty. And so as a result, kids moving back with their parents or even thinking about it brings up a whole lot of confusion around, is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? Is this practical? It's just, it's kind of, it's kind of a chaotic uncertainty that really makes it hard to make that decision. I mean, so true. I think for me, if I'm reflecting, when I first moved out here, the last thing I wanted to do was move all the way back to Nashville. I would have thought and deemed myself a huge failure. But this time that we're in, I have friends who have moved back at home and they're dealing with those feelings without kind of understanding that, it's just a moment where they can come back. And I think that can be a lot of hard, difficult, you know, it can be difficult navigating that headspace, especially when you're feeling like you're a failure because you're moving back home because it didn't work out the way you thought it was. And so many of us are feeling that. So, so there's a lot to unpack on that statement, Ryan. I mean, I think there's a, there's a couple of things I can point out quickly. One is just normal development which is very hardwired in us, this idea of I grow up and I move out and I become independent. That's just a part of growing up. And so that's always in us, no matter what the circumstances are. So much like you said, if I see myself moving out and then I have to come back, there is a sense of failure. Um, I, did, I wasn't able to do it. And yet it, it doesn't take into account the circumstances around us which is a pandemic, which means that potentially moving back home is the, could be the smartest business idea you ever engaged in. So what you're doing is you're fighting against your developmental trajectory. I must move forward and I must be successful and I must be independent, coupled with this is a smart, sensical idea. And that's where the confusion and sort of the mixed feelings come in. Yeah. Dr. Josh Claypo joins us right now as we talk about um, more people living at home right now. And I, I, we know culturally there are certain cultures where this is normal, right? right. Like yeah. it's the whole family. Everyone's in there eating and working together and everything. Uh, but the individuality of it, of leaving the nest and creating your own life is really part of the de that developmental process you mentioned. So I guess like, what are people supposed to do about this if they have that anxiety or judgment around themselves? I think you have to reality check yourself. It's really important because what's going to be driving it is this, like I said, the sort of hardwired, I need to be independent. But what you have to fight against in that emotion is what is the reality? So the idea is, okay, I'm home. I have to go home because I failed versus I'm home because there aren't opportunities right now because of the pandemic or because of the economy or because of politics. So th th this, this idea that, you, that you, you're not going to blame yourself and you're really not blaming anything and you're saying these are the circumstances, you got to fight against that because the normal story is if I have to come home, I have failed. The reality for a lot of people, young people, is if I'm coming home, I'm coming home because the world is in a state of failure right now, for lack of a better description. But this is just as important for me to understand that just like parents should be understanding this, right? Because there are the real people who are really kind of fueling this idea of like, oh, if you're not out by the out of the house by 18 or 19, then we got to worry because something's wrong. Like you're not developing like, you know, my friend's kids are. So how should parents be rethinking about this? That, that was pre-pandemic. 
<laughs> that was the okay. thought of the pandemic and it wasn't healthy then. Right now, the way parents should be thinking about it is, and it's very practical, Ryan, look at your kid's future and what their opportunities are for them right now. It's tough to get a job. It's hard to get into school. It's hard to move things forward. And so look at it practically, not as your kid is some sort of failure. The other thing related to that is just look at the sheer numbers if you're a parent. It's not just your kid. It's most kids. And so as a parent, it's a reality check that says these are, I'm going to use the word, these are unprecedented times. I'm not giving my kids some sort of soft pass. What I'm doing is I'm helping them position themselves for when the future changes. Yeah. And don't project your own insecurities about this situation onto them too. I think that's really important. And just be there to create support. If if you know they're working hard and they're well intentioned, like there needs to be some space, uh, grace and space, as we like to say, to create some kindness and compassion be, or else then everyone's hard on themselves. And that's not a fun place to be. Dr. Absolutely. Josh Claypo, thanks again. We appreciate it. As always. Thank you. Now, coming up, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we're going to be discussing how breast cancer impacts the trans community. That is next in two minutes. It's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we'll be covering different stories on this topic. And today we want to discuss how breast cancer impacts the transgender community, because approximately 1.4 million U.S. adults identify as transgender today, double the number uh, than a decade ago. And while it's still not clear how gender-affirming treatments like hormones or surgery might impact breast health. Most doctors agree that transgender people have unique screening needs. And so joining us right now is Dr. Scott, the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. Thanks for being here for this. Yeah, great to be here. I'm glad you're bringing awareness to the issue. Yes, it's so important. So how are mammograms um, and this entire um, thing, you know, looked at differently for the trans community? Well, first of all, most breast cancer screenings are conducted in what we kind of think of as the mama van sometimes, which usually are huge pink vans going through the city. If you're a trans guy and need to get a mammogram, that's not the place where you want to be seen or want to walk into. If you think about even uh, site-based facilities for mammograms are often very, very female focused and the pinking of the issue of breast cancer is all over the place. So if you're a trans guy and need to get one of those, it's just not going to be welcoming. But not even counting that, trans women as well also need to get screened for breast cancer. And a lot of trans women don't even realize that themselves and the providers that take care of them don't either. And that's the shocking thing, right? Because none of the actual websites include the term transgender, making it even possible for people to even go on Google and search. How are we changing that? How are people like yourself working towards making sure that's possible? Oh, we get a major hustle on with training as many cancer centers as we can, oncologists. Um, we trained at the biggest oncology association just earlier this year. We are all over the place trying to do trainings. At the same time, we're also working with state programs because a lot of these things are actually funded by the state. So um, there are these you know, kind of federally funded programs. And a lot of them, you know, again, focus on women's cancer screening. So we've had some good success. Um, I believe it was uh, Vermont and Maine recently rebranded their programs so they didn't say women, but they said and said, if you need breast cancer screening, you, whoever you are, so that they could be more trans welcoming. Or sometimes they're actually putting out specific trans uh, focused flyers and media, social media. It's so cheap to do that these days. There's really no excuse for anybody not to be able to make it part of a good public health program. Yeah, I think that's so important. Uh, and do you think the trans community, or you obviously know this, are they at a higher or lower risk of breast cancer? Yeah. So I, first of all, I am in the trans community. I'm a trans guy. Um, and there's too little information, uh, too little data collected on us in the first place for us to give you good information about that. Hmm. What we do know is that we have problems with not getting screening as often. Um, I was just actually looking at a study right before this that they did in a clinic it was a trans welcoming clinic even, but they looked at how their trans screening rates differed than their cis screening rates. And for breast cancer, 70%, we were 70% less likely to get screened for breast cancer. So if we're not screened for it, that means by the time you find it, it is farther down the road and we're more likely, unfortunately, to have real complications as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So we know that there's lower screening rates. We also know that we have a history of medical providers not being welcoming, which means that we are more likely to avoid care. Put all those things together with the fact that also we have much higher tobacco use rates 
And once we get the data, I'm going to tell you this, it's impossible for the news to be good. Mm, Again, you're hearing from Dr. Scout, the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network, as we talk about how uh, trans patients deal with breast cancer. And of course, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You know, and the crazy thing while you're talking, I keep thinking about even how disproportionately, you know, trans people of color are probably, you know, affected by this, Um, especially when these screen guidelines generally just focus on cisgender women. And to be honest, that's probably just being focused on a a group of white women, not even women of color. (laughs) So how is that being brought to the forefront? How are are people having those conversations as well? Yeah, we absolutely know that once you talk about being trans in the first place, then if you're also experiencing multiple identities that all experience discrimination, you're less likely to be medically stable. You're less likely to have that health insurance you need. You're less likely to have access to the doctor of your choice that may be the one trans welcoming doctor in town, right? So you add all those factors together and it absolutely is going to be a bigger burden on all the trans people of color. And of course, I think it's kind of hard these days not to know that trans women of color and black trans women specifically are probably the most discriminated population I can think of, maybe in the world, no less. So this is part of that as well. It's something where they do a pretty good job in a lot of these federal programs of outreaching to a broad swath of the population. But again, if trans isn't included, then it's going to be those trans women of color, particularly that, you know, have the biggest challenge trying to get the care they need. That's really unfortunate. What resources are out there right now if someone is listening who's in the trans community or who has a friend or family member and they want, you know, they need support in terms of uh, breast cancer awareness and just checkups? Um, Well, you can absolutely go to our website, cancer-network.org the National LGBT Cancer Network. And also, if you're interested in getting providers trained, we provide provider training for this kind of stuff. Um, But other than that, I really would kind of just say it's important for us to remember, especially as trans guys, even if so many of us have had top surgery, you still need to get screened for breast cancer because top surgery doesn't take away all the tissue that could get cancer. Mm. So we kind of need to spread the word amongst ourselves. And I think- Is there an age? Is there an age where people should start going? Yeah, you know, there's a you're supposed to get screenings for breast cancer from from young life onward. Okay. You don't get mammograms till like 50 or something like that, but you should get screenings from all the way up through the age range. And also, a weird fact about this: while we don't have a lot of data, one of the things we see is when trans women get breast cancer, it's often younger and faster, more virulent. Mm. I don't know why yet, because we need to do more research. But so that's a scary fact. All right. Well, Dr. Scott, thanks again for being with us today for this very important topic. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Scout is the executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. Now coming up, AOC was on Twitch, gaming and talking about healthcare. So is this the future of politics? We discuss that next in two minutes. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made history again this week, this time while gaming. Okay, so she was, was busy playing the video game Among Us, which is one of her favorites. It's a favorite for a lot of gamers. I mean, I'm not a big gamer, but I'm still taking notice of this. She was on Twitch and she drew more than 400,000 concurrent viewers, making her stream one of the 20 most watched streams in Twitch history. And not only was she gaming, but she was using it to have casual conversations even about healthcare. And this is a clip of her talking about that with someone from the UK. So you go to the doctor and then what, what happens? Do you just walk up and you say, I need help? And then they say, you know, how, how does that work? Yeah, like, I can't true. even imagine that interaction without a credit card or some sort of cash payment. I'm the other way you, around. You, you go, you just, you know, you, you you go to the doctor and you say, I have this problem. And then they prescribe you the medicine and then you just go pick it up and that's it. And then you go home and you Google how much it would have cost in America. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, for me too. And that's how you get radicalized. So is this the future of politics? Politicians are just going to head on over to Twitch, play some games, talk about politics. Here's the thing. I sure hope so, because, you know, obviously AOC just a few years ago was behind a bar as a waitress, right? She understands what most politicians don't. She understands having to connect to everyday people because, to be honest, she's still an everyday person. She just has a very big spotlight on her. And also the Twitch demographic is like 16 to 24, 41 
31% and 25 to 34 age range is 32%. So there is a large group of people that she is really hitting. And I really hope that politicians look at her because she is this new wave, right? And if politicians want to start engaging with young folks more, they need to start thinking of things that are outside the box. And her just playing a simple game and educating, you know, kids around the age who are new voters probably is oh, yeah, absolutely wonderful. Part. That is the smartest thing that I could have ever, I mean, thought of. Like, girl, and she it's, did that. And it's also global. So if you're talking about international support, right? Yeah. You know, we were talking about how foreign policy is going to be something big at the debates tonight. Well, the future leaders of even those countries might be these people who are like, I was playing Twitch with you way, way back when. And then when you're running for president, Oh, now we're going to work together. I mean, that's the thing to take notice of here. And the thing is, the reason why it works for her is because it's authentic. Like, and that's the reality of it. While we know what places are cool to be, you know, if it doesn't feel like you would naturally be in those places, it's hard for it to work. Yeah, and I think as we grow and as we evolve and the uh, Democratic Party becomes more progressive, we have to have leaders like AOC spearheading things, actually allowing, you know, young folks to be heard because they are the future. We are the future. And I, I just I love her incorporating this. Like for me, I, I, I remember earlier in the quarantine, I was watching um, like drag queens doing uh, playing video games. And I would love to watch AOC playing like little cute games. Like that's amazing. Also, while getting educated. There you go. All right. Well, check her out maybe on Twitch very soon. She at least has a channel right now. That's where you can engage with her, not just through the news. Now coming up, we've got what's trending this hour and more coming off of the debate. So stay tuned for that. Well, the debates are happening right now in Nashville, Tennessee, and get my the shots hometown. going. It's yep. my hometown at Belmont University. Um, I had so many friends that went to Belmont University, and of course, my mom, she was telling me like she was supposed to go to work today, but she works downtown, um, but she was like, I'm not going downtown because it's going to be crazy traffic, and it's just a whole bunch of mess, and obviously COVID cases are actually spiking um, in Nashville, so that's pretty overwhelming, um, especially when the president doesn't even want to talk about COVID cases. <laughs> but yeah, he's they're visiting a town. I'm visiting a state where those COVID cases are spiking because guess what? There's not even a mandate, a mass mandate in the county that I grew oh, up really? in. Oh, really? And that's where my mom still lives. And she sent me an email this morning being like, there's no mandate. They're just now going into kind of like an extreme where they're changing the rules where they're going to mandate it now. Oh. But there hasn't been for this entire time. So she's been pretty safe, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, she has. She's been, she's been following the rules. She's been nervous. Obviously, she works at a medical college, so that can be very iffy because at one point she was actually doing a COVID test. What? Yeah, they had her doing COVID tests oh because of the school she works at turned into one of the main places for COVID testing. And so they That's had to wild. rely on their employees who aren't doctors. There are students who are doctors, but she's not a doctor. And they, she had to do it at one point. So it's just it's OMG. crazy. Crazy, it crazy, crazy. crazy. So, of course, we're going to be following the debates and bringing you a recap, of course, tomorrow. But, yeah, we're all in this together. Man, it is nerve wracking. Who knows what memes will come out of this one? We'll be watching. OK, but let's get into some quick what's trending this hour. Donald Trump Jr. appeared on Fox Business today accusing Hunter Biden without evidence of being linked to human trafficking and prostitution rings. Money tied to human trafficking and prostitution rings in the other one. That's another big one. The Chinese money. Joe Biden is compromised 100%. You think the Chinese gave... By the way, that was basically a QAnon shout out without saying QAnon, if you're wondering. No one's wondering that because no one wants to listen to this man speak. All he does is one looks like he's uh, done something in the bathroom circa uh, eight, the 80s, what they always would do in the 80s. I'm not going to say it, but y'all got an imagination. Um, and then all you need is a pinky to, you know, do it. You no, know what I'm saying? Okay. You know yes, what I'm moving saying? On. Yep. You know what I'm saying? I hear you. House GOP <laughs> wants to investigate Joe Biden's use of chartered Amtrak trains on the campa campaign trail. So in a letter to Amtrak CEO William Flynn, four Republican representatives argued that chartered trains like the one Biden paid for to tour Rust Belt states are not part of Amtrak's primary objective. 
floated the idea that Biden's charter, quote, redirected Amtrak's scarce resources during a time of record losses, employee layoffs and service cuts during the COVID-19 pandemic. The letter did not provide evidence of these allegations. So you're telling me with everything happening right now in this country, this is these four Republican representatives. This is their primary focus, because if anything, hey, wouldn't have this given Amtrak more money? What? I said, duh. Oh, I said, stop. (laughs) Okay, moving on. And the FDA has approved remdesivir for the treatment of coronavirus infection. The drug sold under the brand name Vecalary has been used under emergency use authorization. And it is the first drug to be approved for treating COVID-19. This comes from the company Gilead, who owns it. Uh, they own everything. They said in the U.S., Vecalary is indicated for adults and pediatric patients 12 years of age and older and weighing at least 40 kilograms for the treatment of COVID-19 requiring hospitalization. It should be only administered in a hospital or in a healthcare setting capable of providing acute care comparable to inpatient hospital care. Now, earlier this month, the World Health Organization-sponsored global study found remdesivir did not help patients survive or even recover faster. But a U.S. study found the infused drug shortened recovery time for some patients by about a third. So that's an update there. And that's what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Oh, goodness gracious. Let's talk about the Tea Report, those pop culture moments that are trending right now. So Tia Mowry, she is speaking out um, in a new people's like podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, Heidi Murkoff has this podcast called What to Expect. She was only to talk about her husband and her mommy responsibilities. But specifically, she talked about how she and her husband schedule um, basically to have sex in order to not neglect any of their important responsibilities, such as work and then their kids. You know, uh-huh. her, their two-year-old daughter, Cairo, and nine-year-old son, Cree. I find this to be so weird, though, Shira. Like, scheduling sex makes me feel like I should never become a parent because, girl, what is that? What do you think? Or get into a long-term relationship, pretty much. I think that when life gets busy and you have kids involved and all that, one, we don't know what that's like. And I'd rather be having sex and scheduling it than no sex at all. So whatever you got to do to keep up a healthy relationship, do it. More power to you versus just avoid Yeah, and I'm not judging that she does it. I'm just saying that just sounds like awful to know that you have to schedule it. Like that is not ideal. It takes away the sexiness of it all. Like who wants to do that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ideally you don't need to do it, but we know how many relationships end because the spark goes out or because like you can't fit this in, right? Lives are busy. And so they're doing what they gotta do. (laughs) Emphasis on you can't fit it in. I did there. Thanks for pointing that out. Oh, God. Well, I don't know. Let us know what your thoughts are. Hit us up at WeAreChannelQ.com. And of course, keep the conversation going on social media at LGT Show. And that's your tea report. Okay, coming up, the debate is happening right now. Here's why Trump wants to focus so much on foreign policy. The Washington Post joins us for that conversation next in two minutes. For tonight's final presidential debate, President Trump is pushing for foreign policy to dominate his conversation with Democratic candidate Joe Biden versus, of course, you know, the issues really devastating our country, like the pandemic, unemployment and other stuff, which let's not get too much into that because it's a hard day already. Um, So will this angle help him win? Well, back with us is the editor of The Fix for The Washington Post, Natalie Jennings. Thanks again for joining us on this very busy day. Glad to be with you all. So in the grand scheme of things, how important is foreign policy here to talk about today? I mean, foreign policy is obviously an extremely important part of the president's job. Joe Biden was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and really focused on foreign policy when he was vice president. So there's a lot that could be said. Um, Of course, like you mentioned, it has taken a back seat in American politics over the last year. Um, And the moderator is who gets to pick the topics for these debates. Kristen Welker of NBC is going to moderate, and she chose six topics, none of them explicitly foreign policy. Um, And I think one thing that is important to know is when President Trump wants to talk about foreign policy, that's probably a way in for him to talk about Joe Biden and his son, who he wants to accuse of impropriety in dealings with foreign countries. So 
depending on how you look at Trump, you may think that obviously he may have done some really good things in foreign policy, but is it really the picture that he is trying to paint? Could it possibly backfire on him? Um, I think right now he wants to be able to make a, a hit on Joe Biden in this arena. Uh, Joe Biden has, of course, a long record of things to talk about. And, and you know, Joe Biden has to go down in the polls in order for this to this race to change. Um, so more than touting Trump's own record, I think he's looking to attack Joe Biden on his. And Natalie Jennings is with us from The Washington Post right now. So let's talk about that. Like if he was going to be bringing down Joe Biden, his record, what would he be referencing? Well, uh, Joe Biden voted for the Iraq war. He was um, against some of the things that were popular that Obama did in terms of like um, surging troops in the Middle East um, in order to get some situation under control there. Um, you know, and he's just affiliated with with all the warring that was going on in the Obama uh, administration. Um, and the other thing is that, um, you know, while we have litigated Hunter Biden's involvement in Ukraine. He was on the board of a company there. Um, that was the reason that President Trump got impeached was because he was trying to further the narrative of uh, Hunter Biden's involvement in Ukraine in an attempt to hurt Biden as the nominee. So, um, so that's really, I think, what Trump wants to talk about tonight. Ryan did mention some of the things that Trump has done has been good on the foreign policy front, but also it has given those countries more in terms of nuclear capabilities. So let's get into what might come up tonight on that front. Yeah, if it does come up, I mean, Trump will talk about how he has taken a much tougher line on Iran. Um, that is controversial, certainly. Um, and he authorized an attack that took out a, a major Iranian military commander earlier this year. Um, as long ago as that seems. Um, he has moved to draw down troops. Um, troop levels aren't down a ton, but he, you know, has been consistently part of his efforts to do that. Um, and he's very tough on China, uh, but not as tough on some of the other foreign adversaries we have, like Russia and North Korea. So, okay, obviously, moving out of foreign policy, what can we expect um, for this debate? Is it anything that could really shift the tides? Like, is this something that is everyone's like, oh, this is a make or break moment for these candidates? Well, there's certainly a lot of pressure on Joe Biden not to make a mistake. Polls show mm -hmm. him uh, leading in pretty much every swing state um, more narrowly than he is nationally, but it's seen as his race to lose right now. Um, he's not the most smooth speaker and he escaped the first debate um, without any negative storylines. Of course, that was all about how President Trump just bulldozed his way through the debate. Uh, now Biden will get more of a chance to talk and that leaves more room for error for him. So with all that, can you just name the topics as we wrap this up of like what we're going to be hearing tonight? Yeah, so President Trump really wanted foreign policy, but that is not on the official list of topics. That is uh, COVID-19, um, race in America, climate change, leadership. I still don't uh, know what they, I mean, hopefully it's a more clear and concise conversation when it comes to race in America, because it kind of reminds me of what Chris Wallace did and it just felt too broad, but whatever. <laughs> right, yes, um, this is not, um, they did not say like Chris Wallace did. Chris Wallace said um, race and violence in cities, um, mm. which, you know, combining those things upset a lot of people. This one is explicitly focused on race. Um, there's plenty to talk about within that. <laughs> And, and then Trump the leadership. Awkward for Trump as well. Um, uh, you know, we, we know what he claims as his, um, his you know, justification his on stance. that. His economy, yeah. um, you know, how great the economy was um, and could be again. Okay, a lot to take in for tonight. Ooh, I'm getting yeah. anxious. Now coming up, how one organization is fighting for the voting age to be lowered. That's next in two minutes. 16-year-olds are fighting for their right to vote, but what would it take to actually lower the required voting age? Joining us right now is Tim Mail, an advisory board member of Vote 16 USA and former Maryland City Council member. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. So let's uh, talk about this and what's being done now um, and what's being pushed for. What is Vote 16 USA? So Vote 16 USA is an organization that helps uh, especially youth, teenagers like the 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds you mentioned, figure out how to advocate for voting rights in the cities and towns that they live in or across the country. And where are we at right now? Do you feel like this has come up more leading up to this election than ever before? 
Yeah, I mean, um, so so I was a city council member in 2012, and and we um, were the first ones to lower the voting age to 16. Scotland had let 16-year-olds vote for their in their independence referendum, and we were trying to do something important on elections and engagement, especially with young people. We realized that it was a change that Maryland's constitution allowed us to make if we wanted to do that in the city election. So we started it in 2013, and. Uh, 16 and 17 year olds have been voting successfully ever since. And now it's spreading in places like San Francisco, Boulder, Colorado, and, and other parts of the country. Wow. That's incredible. That's amazing. Um, just because I feel like this is, it feels unheard of, to be honest, because obviously fewer than one in five young people cast ballots in all Super Tuesday states. I mean, the stats say that young people just do not vote. So when we're starting to see like 16 and 17 year olds really say, hey, we want to get involved, should we really believe them? Because if the stats say one thing, it doesn't really feel like they're showing up. Like what are those obstacles not allowing them to show up on the day of if they are politically engaged? Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the funniest biases on this issue is that people think of young people, even you guys, right. Has a group and 16 and 17 year olds don't act the same way that 18 and 20 year olds act. So in other countries, in Europe, in Texas, a little bit of data in Texas and what we've seen in our city is that 16 and 17 year olds turn out in huge numbers. 18 and 19 year olds and 25 year olds don't. So, I mean, that's the, that's the difference, right? Is a 16 year old lives probably in the community that they were raised, maybe the community they're gonna stay in. An 18 year old might be in college, might have left home and be working somewhere else. So they have a connection to the place they live. They have a friend group that knows that place. But are 16 and 17 year olds just voting because of what their parents are telling them to vote? Are they actually engaging and finding out what their own political opinion? Because when I was 16 and 17, honey, I was like thinking about Democrats just being like, oh, because my mom is a Democrat, right? I had to go out into the world and kind of form my own political opinion. Yeah, I mean, I I, I mean, my personal view is they're no different than anybody else, right? I mean, uh. Does a husband vote like a wife or a wife like a husband or a partner like a partner? Well, apparently for Trump, 50% of white women did. They voted just like their husband. Yeah, and then there's a lot of people getting divorces <laughs> now, so who knows? But uh, Tim Mail, again, who is the advisory board member of Vote 16 USA, former Maryland City Council member, they actually changed their voting age uh, to 16. We're talking about what it would take for this to be implemented nationwide. Uh, when it happened in Maryland City, uh, did you find that it, it changed the v- voting habits? Like, you know, who was voted in previously mm-hmm. didn't get voted in or different propositions, uh, depending on how that age leans. You know, uh, I wish I could say there was a really clear pattern. It's just hard, right? Because there's not a lot of data and it's a small, small city. A lot of elections are not in our city are not contested, just like in other parts of the country. So it's going to take a while before anybody can really see that pattern. But w- what we saw were that 16 and 17 year olds organized debates among candidates and asked about issues that were important to them. They show up at meetings and ask the city council to do things just like everybody else. They host rock the vote events to get turnout. Their turnout has been higher than almost any other group. So 16 year olds basically behave like 70 year olds when it comes to voting. <laughs> I love so, that. Uh, so what will this take to uh, get this approved at a federal level? Because it seems like you're saying from there, it went to other states or uh, communities. Yeah, so but- at, at the federal level, the U.S. Constitution is permissive, right? We don't need a new amendment. It just it says, you know, if you're above 18, you, your rights to vote can't be infringed. But it doesn't say anything about below 16. The problem for 16-year-old voting age in some states like Texas is that the, con- the state constitution says you can't vote if you're below 18. So in states like Maryland, you can make this change at a city level and there's no other approval or vote needed. In a place like Massachusetts, Cities in Massachusetts, many of them have voted to lower the voting age, but they still need a state law. They they need permission from the state legislature to actually make that change. So so what we need is more progress, more cities like ours making this change, and we're already seeing that around the country. And then eventually we need a state to take the same kind of action to lower the state voting age. There was a legislator who's now a congresswoman, Congressman, congresswoman Ayanna Presley, who introduced legislation in Illinois a number of years ago to lower Illinois' voting age. So we need more people like that to, to propose that at some point in the future. And then I think the data will show that 16 and 70 year olds make absolutely awesome voters and do show up. And the one thing I have to to say after looking at the vote16usa.org website is the kids on the board, they are kids of color. 
And so I, I love how you are making sure to include, you know, kids of color into this conversation, because those that's also a group of people, you know, when it comes to just youth of color, not really understanding how the system works and what goes into that when you're picking people to be on the board and having these kids actually spearhead a lot of these things. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say because I'm not the, the, the person recruiting them, but it's not it's not even hard, right? Because so many kids of color want to do this. They want to work on this issue. They want these rights. So, you know, they, they are, it, it's, it's an easy choice to make because so many of them are engaged. Right? That's amazing. Well, that. it definitely does give me hope as we, it well, does. perhaps not this election cycle, but, you know, in the elections to come. Thank you again for joining us today. Yeah, have a great day. Again, that was Tim Mail, advisory board member of Vote16USA.org. Check it out. Now coming up, this TikTok senior is giving us tips on how to stay busy if you're stuck in long polling lines. That's next on our Yaz Queen of the Day. It is time for our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Okay. Of course, the debates are happening right now, but we wanted to give a shout out to an awesome early voter. Texas voter Belinda Varnado has gone viral with her tips on how to stay occupied in a long poll line. She posted this to, to TikTok and she of course encouraged others to vote. I got my grown folks hair on. I got my uh, savage clothes on. They could stand out there for 15 hours. I got my chair. They could stand out there for 24 hours. I got my snacks. Now, she waited in that line for an hour and a half, not that bad. And then because of her viral stardom, she appeared on Don Lemon on CNN to discuss why she wanted to post the video. They're especially if they're full of arthritis like myself. <laughs> so I want them to get that chair, get their snacks, because some of them might be diabetic, you know, and, and, and I had an umbrella too. So when the sun shifted on one side, I shifted to the other side. Love this. Love a little uh, TikTok fame for all ages you're so obsessed with tiktok no um but this story does remind me of a story of uh that's actually making its rounds on social media mm -hmm. of just voters standing in lines and it was like pouring down raining somewhere i'm trying to find the video now but it was pouring down raining and these um voters were still in line with no umbrella just soaked and it really just shows um, the determination that people are really um, having this go around, the motivation to get out there and vote and make sure their voice is heard. And so it's very, very important that we can continue to see things like this and continue to, to feel inspired and actually continue to make a change by also voting. Yeah, and telling the senior citizens out there you know, because those are the the folks that need support right now. Obviously, some of them are sending in their mail-in ballots, but it's difficult because of the pandemic and also having to wait in lines like that. So just take care of each other during this time, please. And that does it for our show today and our Yaz Queen of the Day. So I do have an honorable one. You know, I've been throwing these of in. Of course you been, do, Ryan. I have been watching so much good stuff, and I feel like um, if you have not watched... David Letterman's My Next Guest Needs No Introduction on Netflix. I would recommend you do it immediately when you mm -hmm. get some time um, because it's a sit-down interview that he does that is he goes into either the homes or he goes shopping with or just different places or experiences with different celebrities he is, he is interviewing and they have very deep, in-depth conversations. And it's one of my favorite things that I ended up binging all last night. Um, and yeah, I just have to say it's good to see David Letterman and I am so inspired by the craft of being able to have such engaging conversations with people and just having people bear all to you. It's just really wonderful. Oh yeah, I watched the one with Kim K last night. For some reason, we end up watching things on the same nights. It's very strange. Great minds think alike, Ryan. I think uh, you just yes. saw my tweets about it. No, I like, didn't. Oh, I, I actually did watch not. It. And yeah. I'll, mm -hmm. no, no, I'll be honest. I did not. Just saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, that's one worth watching. And uh, on tomorrow's show, of course, we're going to be giving you the ultimate recap of the debates happening right now. The debates, not plural, but I guess they are two people debating, so it can be considered plural. Yeah, I get and it. And if you, if you missed any of this show, you can check it out on our podcast. Just go to the radio.com app and search Let's Go There. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. See you tomorrow. Have a great night. Bye, y'all.